So the past couple weeks, we've been in this series called Seven, and if you've spent any time in the book of Revelation, there are seven different different letters that are written to churches. And if you've never read Revelation, um, congratulations, it's one of the weirdest books of the Bible. Uh, So I apologize, we're just going to throw you into the deep end and welcome to church. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be okay though. But there is a message for everyone that we can take away uh, from these letters that were written to the church. And it's important to understand and um, what is happening with these letters. Um, Jesus' disciple, John, um, who wrote the book of John, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, uh, this is about uh, 90 AD, so about 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, this, this vision is given to John. And Jesus tells him, write this down. And so in addition to these seven letters, there's a whole, uh, you know, given this prophetic vision of, of what the end will look like, and uh, it's, there's a whole lot of weird beasts and eyes and all kinds of stuff, and we're not going to worry about that today. Today we want to look at one of the letters written to these seven different churches. That's what this series has been all about. So we're going to jump right in and uh, take a look at this. So in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18, if you have your Bible, we'll have it on the screens as well. I'm just going to read through this passage and then we'll kind of dissect it down and, and break it down and see what it applies to us. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols." I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what, this, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, that about sums it up. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. We'll get out of here. And, uh, and if you're here for the first time, maybe a friend brought you and you're like, what did I just get myself into? Just hang, hang on. It's going to be okay. Um, I do want to preface this message with a couple of things. First and foremost, um, If you have little ones, this is going to be a more PG-13-ish message. Um, We've got an amazing children's ministry, preteen ministry, so I encourage you, if you're maybe not comfortable with some of the things we're going to be talking about, uh, now would be a good time. Uh, And the other one is, um, I just, I want want you to know my heart. Um, 
We're going to be talking about some heavy stuff in, in this message. And I struggled. I struggled this week writing this message and studying over it uh, because I just want the words that I say to reflect what's in my heart um, because I, I have a feeling it's going to probably hit home for, for some of you in this room. After that nice little downer, let's jump into the message. <laughs> So first, context is critical. Context is everything. So I want to show you a picture of a map. This is sort of the seven different churches over in Asia. And there's no, like it doesn't say in the book of Revelation, and scholars have debated back and forth why these seven churches. There's really no specific reason why these letters were written to these churches. There are a couple key things that are really important to understand, though, in why God chose the letters to go here. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, they're all on this massive trade route. Each of these cities were major trade cities where they had specific skills and crafts and things that they would sell. And so they're on this major loop of travel. So when word wants to travel, it travels fast, specifically on this loop. And because they're major trade cities, each one of these cities had a ton of influence, even though they weren't necessarily huge cities. Like Thyatira is a fairly small city, but it had massive influence because it's on this, this route, this trade route. And so this, these letters are being written because these churches hold a lot of power in sort of creating culture. These cities held a lot of power in creating the culture and spreading rumors and spreading things that would happen and news would travel fast along this route. On a more figurative level, anytime the, the number seven is referenced in the Bible, it's, it, there's, there's figurative meaning to it. Seven is the number that represents God's completeness or God's fullness. And so when we realize that there are seven letters being sent out, we can take that as like this, like as a complete message, something applicable to every single one of us, things that we can apply in our own lives and that it's good and whole and complete. So understanding that, oh, and one other thing important, really important to know, in fact, one of the things we're going to be talking about quite a bit today is this letter, Jesus, is Jesus speaking. It's coming from Jesus' words himself. He's speaking to these churches. He's speaking to those within the church. He's speaking to those who have, who have taken that, that step, have crossed over that threshold and placed their faith in God, trusting in God, making Jesus the savior of, your, of their life. This wasn't a message to the entire city. It's a message to the church. And if we want to apply that here in, in, in our time, in our, in our day for each one of us, I would say to those of you that maybe you're new to church, maybe you're exploring, maybe you're trying to figure out what you know, this thing called Christianity and faith is all about. If you haven't yet taken that step of faith, this message isn't necessarily for you, but I'm sure there's some things you can gain from it. But this message is specifically geared toward those within the church. So let's break it down kind of verse by verse. And he said, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write this, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Just like any beginning of, of a letter, he's giving himself cre you know, credibility. He's like, this is the one who's speaking, so you know what I say it, it can be taken to heart, can be taken seriously. He's saying, uh, the Son of God, and it's funny because that title, Son of God, isn't used anywhere else in Revelation. This one letter to Thyatira is where he uses it. So he's saying, he's saying, me, Jesus, who holds authority, the Son of God was a title of authority. He says, I have eyes like fire, basically meaning I see all things. 
And there's a line in there that says, you know, I, I, I see into the hearts and the minds of all people. I, Jesus, who hold authority over this universe, who see all, sees all things with feet that are burnished bronze as a way of saying, and I will swiftly pursue all that is evil. I will bring judgment against all things that are evil. So here's who I am. Here's a little bit of credibility about the things I'm about to say. But here's one thing I want you to know first. And he says this, I know your works. I know your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. He says, you're doing good, church. And I, and I think a lot about this place, Washington Heights Church, and I would, and I would love to think, I, th- I think a lot of this stuff applies to what we're doing, and I, and I see all the compassion projects and I, you know, that we do, and it's amazing, and people really get behind it. And, you know, one of the things we hear from first-time guests often is, you know, as soon as I walked in these doors, I just felt loved and welcomed, and I felt like this was the place where I was supposed to be, and, and I see our love and our service and our faith. We're doing good. He's saying, Thyatira, you're doing good. And he says, in fact, that your latter works at see the first meaning, and you're only getting better. You're maturing as Christians. You're understanding what this life as a Christian, as a Christ follower is like, and you're only getting better. You're doing great. Good job. There is much to commend at Thyatira in regard to the maturing as Christians. And I would say the same thing here. The generosity that pours out of this church, especially when it comes to compassion projects and loving on our community, is absolutely mind-blowing. Every time we do something, it's always above and beyond. Good job. That's what Jesus, in his own words, that's what he's saying to this church. That's what he's saying to Thyatira. But... So he's like, hey, you're killing it. Keep doing it. You're growing and everything's looking good. You're on the right track as Christians. But there's a few things we need to address. You ever had to buy a used car? My uh, son, my oldest, is 15. He turned 16 this year. And that day is quickly approaching where I'm realizing we got to buy our kid a car. And so we've been looking around a little bit online and, you know, different ads and stuff. And I've seen a few posts. And it's some of these used car posts. It's like, who, why would you put that? There's a lot of pictures, right? You see the outside of this car and it looks, it's, wow, the paint looks good. The tires are in good shape. Everything seems, and then you can see like one random shot of the inside. And you're like, ooh. Like, did you live, did you, ooh, like, what, what is going on? Or, like, all you see is the inside of the car. The inside looks great. And then there's one shot where you can, like, see the hood, and it's, like, completely rusted out. And you're like, what, why would I put my money into this? There's a lot of that sort of, hey, this part looks really good, but this part, not so much. In fact, one post that I saw says, very clean, <laughs> less than 60,000 miles, only rolled once. Hey, hey, it's a, it's a deal. And I think they want, what, $3,500. It's only been rolled once. It's fine. Everything works great. It's not a big deal. But I did think, I do think I found the one that I'm going to get my son. And the title, you know, the, the description is very clean. Everything works just fine. Let's go. What? 
It's a 1941 Pontiac vibe. I don't think that's right. Very clean. Everything works fine. Take me at my word. Uh, but then I found the one. I found the one, guys. I found it. Beats walking. Here you go, son. Wow, this is a piece of junk. Hey, it beats walking. I had to drive a beater when I was growing up. You will do the same. <sighs> maybe. That's a maybe. That's a maybe for me. Some of these cars, if you were to see parts of it, are like, hey, that's not bad. There's, there's some really great attributes and qualities of that car. The problem is most every single one of us take a look at these cars and we see the whole picture and we're like, I'd rather not. I'll pass on that. Because the defects outset the virtues. And that's what Jesus is telling this church. That's what he's telling you and I. Hey, you're doing great. You're doing really good. You're following me. You're loving me. You're serving. You're you know, being good in your community. Your faith is strong. But there's some stuff we got to work on first. He goes on to say, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It's important to understand context, again, is everything. And as a reminder, this is a message for the people within the church, for people who have already crossed that line of placing their faith in Jesus. So Jezebel is a character from the Old Testament. She was the queen. She was married to King Ahab, who the Bible declares one of the worst kings ever to, to rule in Israel. And, and what Jezebel did was basically seduced Ahab into buying into her gods, Baal being one of the most prominent ones. Baal was known as the storm god, the one who would bring rain. And so what they would do is practice sexual acts in order to, to sort of incite uh, this god to come and bring fertility to the land. You can imagine how quickly that would derail. And King Ahab is just buying right into this. In fact, at one point she had the, 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 the God, the prophet speaking on behalf of God, the God of Israel, rounded up and murdered. There's a guy named Obadiah who actually had to go and hide these prophets in caves so that they wouldn't be murdered by Jezebel. And it's important to understand when the word prophet is used in the Bible, uh, what it means is, is essentially a, a, a mouthpiece, a spokesperson on God's behalf. Sometimes it was just simply to encourage people. Sometimes it was to provide caution. God would send a, a prophet to, to a city and say, hey, you know, kind of like this message, you're doing great, but there's a few things that you're getting wrong. And, and so I'm here to sort of basically provide that, that buffer, that warning. Sometimes they were given the ability to perform miracles. Sometimes it was God would speak through them and show, uh, you know, a, a, a prophetic, you know, thing that's to come. But more than all of that, their main role was simply being a, a spokesperson for God. And so she would have these prophets rounded up and, and murdered. And, and here in Revelation, 
what's happening within the church, inside the church, is this growing sickness. It would be like if you said, hey, Pastor Mike, can, uh, I need to talk with you. We meet and I counsel you. And you say, hey, uh, you know, I've, I've really been considering and having strong urges to, uh, to have an affair. And if my response were to be, well, you know, those are natural feelings, so go ahead. What? But that's what was happening within the church. Like, hey, this is sort of the, the cultural norm, so, 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 so go ahead. It's fine. Hey, everybody looks at porn. It's okay. As long as it's not hurting anybody, right? How many, how many reels and posts do you see on social media, on Instagram or TikTok, promoting and celebrating day drinking the entire day? But it's okay, everybody's doing it, it's fine. There was a major win for Utah uh, this last week. The pornography giant Pornhub was banned. They removed themselves from the state of Utah because the state of Utah wouldn't allow minors on. It's a huge win. Huge win. What, what they meant as a blow for the state of Utah actually is a huge win. But it's this normalization, this cultural norm of sexual acts. It's fine. Everybody's doing it. It's not a big deal. Nobody's getting hurt. Eating food sacrificed to idols. You're like, well, what, what does that mean? So in that time, you saw the map of this trade route. These trade cities had what was called trade guilds. And, and they, would, they, would, they were these groups for, for basically the elite. Like if you were part of this trade guild, that, that was a, like a society, a, like a club that you belonged to. And, and if you wanted to hold your, your status and your title within that city, you would do what the trade guilds would do. If you wanted to keep your job, if you wanted to have a home, if you wanted to live and be successful, you would do what they would do. And one of the things they would do is have these banquets and parties all the time. In fact, Pastor Roy talked about it a little bit last week. And one of the things at these parties is they would take the, the finest of the meats that were offered as sacrifices to these pagan idols, and that was their food. That's what they would enjoy. And then one thing would lead to another at these parties... And all kinds of orgies and sexual acts would happen. But if you didn't buy in, if you weren't a part of that club, you were kicked out. And if you were kicked out, you'd lose your job. You'd lose your home. You'd lose your, we your well-being, your way of making money. And so it just became culturally acceptable. But the problem is, and what this letter is being addressed about, is this was happening inside the church. In fact, speaking of King Ahab and Jezebel, says there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab did. 
whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. So God said, hey, here's this promised land that I'm going to give to you. Go ahead and take it over. And in the process of taking over this land, he drove out the Amorites who worshipped Baal. And, and now they're doing the exact opposite of what God has done. They're bringing this, this idol worship, worshipping Baal, creating all and having all these sexual acts and eating the food selling themselves because it was the cultural norm. And so he says, I have this against you that tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know if there was an actual woman named Jezebel. I highly doubt it because that name, as it's being referenced, was like a slap in the face. No one would name their kid Jezebel because they knew. There was a, or there, one, one option was, uh, it's kind of split, you know, theological scholars are like kind of split down the middle. It could have either meant that there was a person that was doing this within the church and kind of rallying people and normalizing, you know, sexual misconduct and, and this, you know, selling themselves to, to basically eat the foods meant for these idols. And they were just kind of nicknaming her Jezebel or that it, there was a, a cultural movement happening in the church. And, and Jesus is giving a nickname to this cultural movement. But that's the direction I'm going to go with. Because if you spend any time looking around, there is a cultural movement happening right in front of our eyes. So whether or not it was an actual person or allowing cultural influence to infiltrate the hearts of believers, there was a tolerance of false teaching creeping into the church. And it's, and it's the tolerance that was the sin. It's being allowed. It's being uh, uh, furthered. It's being promoted. And, and God is saying, hey, you guys are doing great, but this is unacceptable, Paige Patterson, a, a theological scholar, uh, wrote this. Specifically, the sin at Thyatira was the sin of tolerance. To contemporary ears, that's you and I, to say such, thing, such a thing sounds strange since in the present climate, intolerance is about the only universally recognized sin. You go anywhere in our culture and you fight against anything that is, that is prevalent you're a, if you're not affirming, if you're not accepting, if you're not tolerant, you're a bigot, you're a hater, you're a racist. And this is what Jesus is saying. The tolerance within this church is the defect that is offsetting your virtues. So let's look at these false teachings. One, cultural sexual immorality is acceptable and even promoted. The idea that, hey, everybody's doing it, so it's fine as long as nobody's getting hurt was growing within the church. There may be some in this room or watching online Maybe you have a natural inclination toward homosexuality. Maybe you have family members or friends, people close in your community 
or maybe people that are struggling with their gender and identifying what, what they are, or transgenderism, and you're trying to figure out what it all means, and everyone's wondering, what is Pastor Mike going to say next? <laughs> I told you, I struggled with this message this week. We are called to live in truth and love. And these sexually immoral acts, God has things to say about. But that doesn't mean he doesn't love you. That doesn't mean that I don't love you. The problem is, it was becoming acceptable and even promoted as a Christ follower. Or, or compromising spiritual well-being to be accepted and successful it, it is fine. How many, how many people have been hurt or people you've stepped on at work so you can get ahead? or so that you can stay a part of that inside group at work or within your friends? How many people have you kicked off that ladder of success so that you can stay popular, so that you can stay accepted, so that you can maintain and have your job and maintain your success? There's nothing wrong with success or wealth. Those are gifts from God. But what have you done to get there? And so the question has to be asked, well, how, how is this happening within the church? Like, how did the church get there? The problem is, is it came from within. So there's credibility attached. If I were to say, hey, look, if you need to look at pornography, everybody's doing it, it's fine. It's not that big a deal. I mean, how many people look at pornography all the time and they live their normal lives? If I were to say that, now it gives pornography credibility and you can say, well, hey, the pastor said it was fine. That's, and that's exactly what's happening there. And as Christ followers, those of us that have stepped over that line, what, is that, what does that look like for us today? And I, and I was thinking about things that we say, especially those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and continue to live in ways that we know God is against. We find things to say to sort of cover it up, to mask it, to, to feel a little bit better within our, our hearts about the decisions and choices or things we're saying, the things that we're doing. How about this one? God wants me to be happy, right? Doesn't God, doesn't God want me to be happy? No. What? He wants me to be faithful. Happiness, church, hear me, hear me, hear my heart. Happiness is a temporary emotion. Our emotions have been given to us by God, but we also live in a broken, sinful world, so our emotions are, are, are going to lie to us. 
Our emotions are not always going to be what is real. And what you may take as happiness is the enemy working and scheming and manipulating your life. But faithfulness brings joy. Now, joy is a sustaining factor. Happiness is a temporary emotion. So, we're called to not do these things. And it sounds like what, what, what we're saying is, is, you know, kind of bow-breeding people with, with the truth. But aren't, aren't we called to love everyone? We certainly are. But we're called to love people in truth and in love. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So if you're choosing to follow after Jesus, if you're choosing to claim faith in him, if you're choosing to be one of his disciples, you are going to follow and live in his way, in his light, in his truth. And his truth is clear on the lives that we have been called to live. Now we can exist and live in truth without, without pounding it over people on the head and turning them away. I've, I have met more Christians who are so hateful and I can't process it. Yes, we are called to love everybody, but there's a line of truth within that love that we're also called to, and that is the truth of Jesus Christ. But you can be who you want and still follow Jesus, right? And this is where a lot of people, this idea of I can create my own truth, what is real and true to me is my world and my universe. And as Christ followers, our truth exists right here. And the simple answer to this question of can you can be who, who you want and still follow Jesus is no, you cannot. Well, Pastor Mike, that sounds a little harsh. Is the, it, that kind of stings a little bit. Because the things that I'm doing feel good and God wants me to be happy, right? No, God wants you to be faithful. He wants you to live in truth and love. And he wants you to follow after him. Following after him, does that include loving other people and being accepting of other people? Absolutely. Does it include offering grace and mercy, being humble? Absolutely. But it also includes self-denial, self-sacrifice, Denying the things that, that you think would make you happy in your life is part of following Jesus. In fact, he said this in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You may have a natural inclination towards something. Maybe you're sitting in this room and that is something that you struggle with. If I'm being totally transparent in my life, I've struggled with a sexual addiction. I have a natural inclination toward wanting to view pornography. But if I'm being told that I have to bear my own cross, otherwise I cannot be a disciple of Jesus, that means I have to set that natural inclination aside as, as hard as that might be because it feels good. And I have to carry that burden 
so that I can follow Jesus. And there may be some of you in this room that are being called to shoulder that burden, to to self-sacrifice yourself like Jesus did so that you can follow him. Well, I don't like the way that feels. That seems harsh. It seems like you hate who I am. Listen to me. Hear me. Hear my heart. I love every single person in this room. I do. I love every single person watching online with my whole heart. But if I'm going to live as Jesus did, if I'm going to follow him who says I am the way and I am the truth and I am the light, then there's a bit of a tension now that exists. The title of this message is Waiting into the Mess because it's not going to be clean and pretty. It is going to be messy. It is going to be harder. There is going to be tension that we have to live in, in truth and in love. You cannot follow Jesus and be self-indulgent at the same time. It's like water and oil. The two can't go together. Like we saw in Mike's faith story earlier, it was a journey, it was a process, and every single one of us are on a journey. So let's continue on. That got a little heavy, I know, I know, I told you, I told you. He goes on and says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. What he's saying is, right, if this idea of who Jezebel is, 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 and, and buying in is, is committing adultery. Well, committing adultery is, is the willing departure of a relationship for another. It's a willful act. And every time I choose to do something self-centered, please myself, say something hurtful, act out in sin, it's a willful departure from my relationship with God. And you might say, well, what, what about God's grace? Where does grace fall into this equation? We are all forgiven, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. But one of the things Jesus has told us is to repent of your sin. That word repent means literally to do a 180, to turn direction. I love David in the Old Testament. He was one of the kings. He was a man that God called a man after his own heart. If you know anything about David, he was a piping hot mess. He had a man murdered. How does, a, how does a guy who had a man murdered also get called by God a man after his own heart? Because every single day he chose, no matter what mistakes he made, to turn and follow after God. And that was what God is seeking from you. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. What does it mean, this deep things of Satan? And this is really, really important. If you think all the way back to the beginning, when sin entered this world, did Satan walk up to Eve and say, hey, I got a really bad idea. 
It's going to cause all kinds of pain and heartache. People are going to hate you because you're going to enter like sin of this world. Childbearing's going to have to be painful. That's no good. It's going to be really bad. Are you in? No. He took something that was good and he manipulated it and made it seem tempting and, and, and enjoyable. This sounds good. Why, why wouldn't God want me to have this? It feels good. God made me this way. My friends, no, he did not. I believe the greatest scheme of the devil in this generation is tricking us into a cultural deconstruction of the fabric of our created entity. Let me read that again. There's a lot of big words. The greatest scheme of the devil in this generation is tricking us, fooling us into a cultural deconstruction of the fabric of our created entity. He's taking who we are and breaking it down. And in the name of love, we will embrace it. In the name of loving everybody unconditionally, it doesn't matter, we will embrace this, this deconstruction of the fabric of who we are. God created us in the beginning. He created man and he created woman and he said, it is good. We are his special creation. In fact, Jesus, when he's speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, I, I take care of the birds that fly around. I feed them. How much more important are you to God than the birds? You are a unique and special creation that God has chosen. And our culture, the scheme of, of the devil, of the, our enemy, is trying to deconstruct that and using this incredible weapon of, of love, this, this tool of love that God has given us, that Jesus put on display and using it against us. He goes on to say, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, well, what were his works? Loving compassionately on people, but also speaking truth into their lives. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, and even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So we're in this tension of truth and love. So, so what do we do? How do we do it? We have to live in truth and love. And, and, and what does that look like? Because there's this, this pendulum that swings, right? On this side, we have the truth of God. And, and how we speak the truth of God can really make or break the difference in somebody's choosing to have a relationship with Jesus. Because we can go out and pummel people with the truth. And on this side of the pendulum, there's love and embracing and acceptance. And that can be taken so far as to affirm and agree and buy and be tolerant 
of everything. So, so where's the middle of this pendulum, right? Where in truth and in love, where we're speaking with the most gracious heart the words of God, not to condemn, not to judge, not to, to push away, but to welcome in a life that is meant to be full and complete and whole. We have to embrace the tension. Make no mistake, living in truth and love, being a part of our communities, being a part of our families, being a part of our friend groups, if we're speaking the truth, but we're doing it in love, there's going to be some tension. It's going to feel awkward. Wade into the mess. That's what Jesus did. He waded right into the mess. He embraced the tension. And to do that effectively, you have to know him. You have to spend time with him. Get into his word and learn about his love and his compassion, but the truth that he holds and that he is. And then we have to take down our fences and open up our tables. Well, what does that mean? Pastor Matt Chandler, he's the pastor of the Village Church in Texas. One of the things he says is, in our Western culture, we have really high fences and really small tables. The church in the first century, you know how it exploded and grew? They're joining together, sharing a meal together, bringing people into their homes. Invite somebody from your neighborhood over to dinner. Bring people into your home where you can live in this, this tension of, of truth and love, where you can love on them fiercely with compassion. But be brave enough to speak the truth of our God as well. And the result, the gift that we receive for doing that is Jesus himself. The gift of living in truth and love is Jesus himself. He said, and I will give you the morning star. The morning star is another name for Jesus. At the end of Revelation, he says, I am the morning star. So when you choose to live in truth and in love, the, the result, the gift that we get to have and enjoy is Jesus Christ himself. The essence of love, the essence of truth for eternity. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, it's one thing to talk about truth and love from a stage. It's a whole other game, walking out these doors and living it out in our communities. God, would you give us the boldness, the courage to live in your truth, the truth of who you are, and at the same time, loving as deeply and compassionately as you did. 
May we be willing and brave enough to open up our homes and bring people in and share a meal with them and speak truth into other lives the way that you did. Go with us now. Be with us this week. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.